it still has such strong repercussions and effects in our world today. And so we celebrate that, and we're glad that you're here to celebrate that with us. I'm Wesley. I'm one of the pastors here at Tri-Cities Church, and I just welcome you here. I have a couple of announcements um, before we get into the message. The first announcement is, well, first I just wanted to, since we have a number of visitors here, I want to introduce some introductions. This is Jamie Vernon right here. Jamie's one of our pastors here at Tri-Cities as well, and also um, playing on the keys. And then we have uh, Paul Kenny in the back, who was, um, he was our worship leader. He was the guy right here with the Tri-Cities logo on his chest. Um, and then um, if you drop your kids back in the um, children's department, Lisa Andrews, she's in charge of our children's program. Um, and, um, and then I'm Wesley Bolden, and I'm one of the pastors here. So those, those are just a few introductions. Hey, feel free anytime um, after the service to grab hold of us, to talk to us. Um, if you have questions about the church, if you have uh, questions about uh, Christian faith, if you have questions about um, just anything, uh, baptism, direction of, of, uh, of your life, or, or even if you just need prayer, uh, feel, feel free to grab hold of e- any one of us and just talk to us, and, and we, we'd love to pray for you. Also, um, in your seats, I think they were in every other seat, there are those connection cards. Um, those have a, a space on the back where you can write prayer requests. Um, but we'd love to just know who's here and to pray for people who are here. Uh, and so if you could fill out one of those. And then uh, uh, at the end of the service, we'll, we'll share in communion. And that's at these four tables. And there's buckets on these four tables. And those are for the offering. But you can also drop, um, you can also drop one of those connection cards in there as well. Uh, we really do pray for those who are here, and we, we have joy in not just praying for people, but seeing how God responds to those prayers. Um, because the reality is, as we go through life and from time to time, we, we get to hear these good reports about what God is doing and how God is working in somebody's life. And we get to say, yes, our praying is not in vain. God hears it, and God does respond. God's helping us be more dependent upon him. And God is helping us to trust him as he proves his faithfulness to us um, every day. So um, please do that uh, towards the end of the service. Uh, the other announcement is this morning we're beginning a new series. It's simply called Driven. Um, and we're talking about what drives God or what drove Jesus to do what Jesus did. It's a three-week series. This is the first week we're looking at the gospel. And then next week we're going to look at uh, two characteristics, or the following two weeks we're going to look at two different characteristics that gave shape or give shape to the gospel and to God's character, which is grace and goodness. And you don't want to miss that because this is, it's a, it, these are like essential characteristics of God, and it's good to know, you know, we come here and we sing about God and what God has done, um, but the Bible also teach us, teaches us about who God is. Um, and so it's important for us to learn about who God is because that shapes what God does and how God interacts with us in our lives and helps us to relate to him better. Amen? All right, well, um, we're going to jump into this series. If you will, just pray with me, and, uh, and then we'll, we'll, we'll talk. God, we give you thanks uh, for this morning, for your being here with us. God, we love you. We love you. You have paid our debt. And we praise you, for you are the good and awesome and mighty God. God, I thank you that you're helping us to trust you more and more every day. That as we read your word and as we gain understanding from it, that we trust you more and more. As we see you interact in our lives and see the way that, the way the God that your word says that you are is the God that you really are in our lives. God, we're learning to trust you. 
And so, God, we thank you for helping us to do that, and we ask that you guide us into this message this morning as we talk about the gospel, what you have done, this great story that's changed our lives. So in your Son, Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so the question we're trying to get at this morning is, why did Jesus do the things that Jesus did? What was, what was driving Jesus to do the things that he did? When we read throughout the Bible, especially in the New Testament, the story of Jesus, we see that Jesus did some pretty outrageous things, some things that were culturally unacceptable, right? There's this story in John chapter 4 of Jesus, and sometimes I think we're, we're a little removed from these stories, so it's, it's hard for us to see how shocking they were. But in John chapter 4, there's this story of Jesus, and he's at a well, right? We don't even have wells today, but Jesus was at a well drawing water. And there's this lady that was at the well in the middle of the day, and Jesus meets this lady there. Now, this lady was a Samaritan, and Jesus was a Jew. And Jesus begins to talk to her. Now, for us, that doesn't seem very shocking. Um, but in that day, Samaritans and Jews, they didn't have conversation with one another. They lived separately. They were segregated. They didn't live with one another. They didn't talk to one another. They didn't touch one another. And Jesus begins talking to this lady, which is culturally unacceptable, and he begins to minister to her, um, and he talks to her about her past. Now, this was a lady with a past, and he says to her, you have five husbands, and the man that you're with is not your husband. Now, so here you have Jesus, this guy who's a religious leader of the day, and acting in these very culturally unacceptable ways by first having conversation with a woman with such a past, but then also having conversation with a Samaritan when he was a Jew. Throughout the scriptures, we see Jesus acting and living in culturally unacceptable ways. There's this other story in the Bible about Jesus touching people who had leprosy, which was a disease that was very contagious. In biblical times, people who had leprosy because they didn't have the kind of medical care that we have today and the doctors that we have today, they were outcasted and made to live outside of the community. They weren't allowed to live with other people. And Jesus would literally come up to these lepers who had sores all over their bodies and, and diseases that were extremely contagious, and he would lay his hands upon them. And he would touch them when no one else would draw get near to them. In fact, lepers had to live separate, but they also they would have to shout out that they were lepers wherever they went, because people would not. It was illegal for them to come near to people, and for them to allow people to come in their presence. But Jesus went into their presence in a very culturally unacceptable way. He was always doing these kind of outrageous things that you would never see anyone else in biblical culture do. And then there's that scene from the cross, if you remember the story, right? Jesus was hanging on the cross, and while he was hanging on the cross, he looks down upon the people that nailed him there. And he doesn't say, I hate you. He doesn't spit at them, right? Those are some of the things we might do. But he prays to God, and he doesn't pray to God for his help and for his strength, but he says, Father, forgive them because they're unaware of what they're doing the very people that hung them there. Now, for us, a lot of times it takes us getting past an event to look back and say, I forgive you. But Jesus, while they're on the cross, said, Father, forgive them. That's culturally unacceptable, even in our culture today. And so these, questions, these, these stories raise the question, what was driving Jesus? What caused him to do the things that he did? Was he just a nice guy? 
Maybe you've seen some of these pictures on, of Jesus with this lamb on his shoulders, and he has this kind of creepy look on his face, this peaceful look. He's just kind of staring off into space. Was that the Jesus of the Bible? Was he just this creepy, nice guy, this guy that was so nice it was kind of creepy, kind of creeped you out? Right? Was that Jesus? Was he just being kind to people just because that was who he was? Would he just feel compassionate and sorry for them? Or was Jesus this cultural rebel? Right? Was he just trying to do things to kind of shake people up, to stir up culture, to, to go against the cultural norms? Did he just want to be different for the sake of being different? Or was Jesus this, um, this guy who was um, just this radical teacher using unorthodox methods to make his point? Was he like this extreme teacher that was just doing these wild and crazy things, almost like this shock factor stuff in order to make a strong point to make people's ears perk, out, uh, perk up and listen to who he was? Right? Who was Jesus and what was driving him to do the things that he did? Because he was a pretty radical guy and he did things that went against the cultural norm. Now, when we read the Bible, the Bible's clear that there's this thing called gospel that's behind Jesus' actions. From time to time, the Bible talks about this gospel, that Jesus came to preach the gospel. And we even use this word today. We talk about preaching the gospel or accepting the gospel. Or, or we, we think about the word gospel in a number of different ways, right? We associate gospel with a variety of different, different things. For some of you, when you hear the word gospel, the first thing that comes to your mind is music. Maybe it's black traditional gospel. Artists like Mahalia Jackson, right? Or, or Shirley Caesar. Or maybe you think of Southern gospel music, the uh, Gaithers or, or a quartet. Right? Maybe, maybe that's the first thing that comes to your mind. Or maybe you think about the first four books of the New Testament. Those are called gospels, right? There's the gospel of Matthew, gospel of Mark, gospel of Luke, gospel of John. Right? Those are gospels. What, what's the first thing that comes to your mind when you think of the word gospel? Maybe you grew up in the church or you've, been, um, you've heard somewhere that the gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. Right? That's, that's kind of the standard answer that people give when you ask them, what is the gospel? It, it's the good news of Jesus Christ. And I think the question for us is, is, what is this good news? What's the content of the news? Because the word gospel does literally mean good news. For the first century hearers of this word, when someone spoke about the gospel, what they heard was good news. If we trace this word back to its roots, that's what it means. But what's the content of it? What is the news and what about it makes it good? What about the gospel makes it good? And was it the very thing that was driving Jesus to act? Now, if you read throughout the Bible, and especially in the first uh, four books of the New Testament, the gospels, if you read those, it becomes clear that the gospel is the good news that God is establishing his kingdom upon the earth. It's the good news that God is and now has established his kingdom upon the earth. Now let's break that down because we don't really talk about kings much uh, anymore. And we don't talk about kingdoms. We don't, we don't really live in a, in a kingdom. But in the biblical world, the world was ruled by, by kings. And kings had total power over their kingdoms, over nations and territories that formed their kingdoms. They, had total, they were sovereign. They were completely in power. They ruled. In fact, kings became godlike figures in the ancient world. You had to obey them. And if they demanded your worship, you had to worship them or face imprisonment or even death in extreme cases. 
And so kings were almost like gods. They had total power. They demanded allegiance. People bowed down. They worshiped them. They obeyed everything that the king said. And in the Roman world, or the biblical world, the Roman kingdom was the most powerful kingdom in the world. It ruled the ancient world. The whole Mediterranean world was ruled by the Roman Empire, which was a kingdom. It began as a small kingdom that expanded as it conquered territories and became, a, um, became an empire. And so whenever we read in the Bible, we read about Rome. It's this Roman Empire that at the time of Jesus' birth was the most powerful kingdom in the entire world. And Caesar Augustus, the emperor, was the most powerful man in the world. He ruled over people, and he ruled strongly. He was powerful. Kingdoms were powerful. They demanded allegiance. There was no power higher than the power of the king, except for one. In the biblical world, everyone knew it. That was death. Death was the only power over which no one had authority. Death was the only power that no one could command and no one could control. Look at some of these scriptures in the the Old Testament. In, In Psalm chapter 89, verse 48, it says, Who can live and not see death? Or who can escape the power of the grave? Ecclesiastes 3, verse 1 says, There's a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens, a time to be born and a time to die. That's a reality that we experience. And in Habakkuk 2, verse 5, I like the way it refers to death. It's a very poetic way. It says, the grave is greedy and death is never satisfied. The grave is greedy and death never has enough. It never becomes satisfied. You see, death was king. It was truly king. Although in these kingdoms they were able to elevate these kings up to this godlike status, the reality was they would never be gods because they were all mortals and they all had a power that was above them, and that power was the power of death. You see, death is what kept people from viewing their kings as gods. That's what separates kings from gods. It's it's death. It's the fact that every king that ever lived faced death. Now, the Romans were kind of smart. They tried to make their kings into gods, right? And so they created these kind of imperial cults these, where they, they took these kings and they gave them a godlike status. They made them gods. They worshiped them in an effort to extend their life or to give this illusion that their lives were being extended. But in reality, the only thing they were able to do, because death was really king, the only thing they were able to do is to extend the legacy of the emperor or extend the legacy of the king. No king who ever lived avoided death. Death happened to them all because death is king. But then the Bible tells us this, and this is where the gospel comes in, and that's that God established his kingdom on the earth by doing one thing, and that's conquering death. Death has been dethroned as king by Jesus Christ himself. The resurrection establishes Jesus' authority upon the earth. If you look at Matthew chapter 28, I believe this is the last uh, chapter in the book of Matthew. At the beginning, it tells the story of the resurrection, right? It says, after the Sabbath at dawn, 
on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake for the angel of the Lord came down from heaven going, and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning. His clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen. Just as he said, come and see the place where he lay, then go quickly and tell the disciples. He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I've told you. And so the beginning of the book of Matthew records this story of resurrection. It says, yes, Jesus kept his promise. He really did rise from the dead. But what's amazing is what Jesus says at the end of that chapter in verse 18. It says, then Jesus came to them and said, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. And Jesus claims his authority because now he has conquered death. He looks back and says, death was king, but now death has been dethroned by Jesus Christ himself. And then Jesus is able to proclaim at the end of Matthew that all authority is mine. It's now mine because I've conquered death. And now I'm king, and now my kingdom's established upon the earth. You see, that's the gospel. The gospel is the good news that Jesus has established his kingdom upon the earth. And the church takes this good news and they run with it and they celebrate it. And I love in in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, there's this story where Paul goes on and on about death and about how we're mortals and how we all face death. But then listen to what he says. It's like he taunts death. It's like he's making fun of death or mocking death because it's lost its power. In verse 55 in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? You see, Paul experienced the confidence to turn to death and mock death, to speak to it and say, you no longer have power because you've been dethroned as king. And those who live as citizens of God's kingdom are now not under your power. You no longer control us. You see, instead of death robbing Jesus of his kingly power, as death has done to every other king that ever lived, Jesus robbed death of his power. Jesus has robbed the grave. He has stolen the power from death. In Philippians, Paul writes this, talking about Jesus. He says, In being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. Yes, Jesus humbled himself. He became obedient to death because at that time death was king. But then look at what it says about after the resurrection. Therefore, God exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow on heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Because of the resurrection, every knee has to bow to Jesus because he's now king. He is now taking the place where death once stood, where death once had power over everything. He is now Lord, and every tongue is going to acknowledge the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord and King, because God has established his kingdom upon the earth, and that's good news. You see, the resurrection has literally changed the course of history. The resurrection has changed 
the course of history. And now Jesus is exalted as the hero of history. He's exalted as the one who reigns and the one who is king. You see, God has chosen to save, and this is the way that Scripture puts it, the entire world. He's chosen to save the world from death. He's chosen to reach out to us while we were still facing a destiny of death. In John 3.16, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. You see, God has established his kingdom. He has conquered death. He is now the hero of history. The world is now being turned around through Jesus Christ as Jesus welcomes people into his kingdom. And the gospel tells of a kingdom that is radically inclusive. The gospel tells of a kingdom that includes all people. It includes every tongue, every tribe, every nation, people of every color, ethnicity, and background. The gospel is even a call to people of different religious identities to come into the kingdom of God. It's radically inclusive. God says, this is my kingdom. It is for you. But then he says this, come and live as citizens of my kingdom and submit to me as king. You see, it's a call to everyone, the entire world, to come and be a part of his kingdom. God has established his kingdom on the earth. It's already established. That's already been done by the resurrection. Now God is calling us to live as citizens of his kingdom, where we worship the king, where we have total allegiance to the king, where we bow down and we obey the king. You see, the gospel calls us into this alternative kingdom from the kingdoms of the world. And it's an alternative kingdom that's shaped by the resurrection. It's given its shape by the resurrection. So it's a community whose morals and ethics and values have been shaped by the resurrection and citizenship in God's kingdom. In chapter 2 of Philippians, a little later than what I read a minute ago, Paul says this. He says, For as I've told you and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But then he says this, our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship has been changed. Our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly wait a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies that they may be like his glorious body. You see, the church is a church, who, is a community whose citizenship has been changed. We're now citizens, citizens in God's kingdom, where God reigns, where God is king. And not only has our life been changed, but our destiny has been changed. And so the church is now a gospel-centered community. It's a community that's not focused on what we can do and what we can collect and what we can gather for ourselves and what we can muster up the strength to do and what we can accomplish by our own strength. But being gospel-centered means that it's focused on what has already been done. It's focused on the power of Jesus Christ that has already conquered death and now wants to live through us. 
You see, the Bible teaches us that Jesus Christ wants to live not just in us, but through us. He gives us the power to live as citizens of the kingdom. So as before, when we looked at the law as a list of rules and things that we had to do, God is saying to us, listen, I want you to come as citizens of my kingdom, and I will empower you. I will give you strength. I will help you to live as a citizen of my kingdom. I love what Tim Keller says. He says, the gospel is the good news that through Christ, the power of God's kingdom has entered history to renew the whole world. When we believe and rely on Jesus' work, rather than ours, for our relationship to God, that kingdom power comes on us and begins to work through us. The reality is, is God's power works through us as citizens of his kingdom. And so the gospel leads us from a destiny of death. It leads us from a life that's headed toward death. And it leads us to a future, a new future secured for us by the resurrection. You see, Jesus has come to lead us from death to life. In John chapter 10, he says, the thief only comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. The gospel is all about releasing us from this destiny of death and calling us to a new future that's characterized by life, a life that never ends. And the Bible teaches us this, that we're not just to embrace this life and just say, thank you, Jesus, but that the way we live now ought to point forward to the destiny that God has prepared us for the destiny that God has secured for us, the life that never ends. So the way that we live now points forward to that reality. I like what Jesus and his disciples come to him and they ask him, how should we pray? What is one of the things that he tells them to pray? Pray that your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He doesn't tell them to sit around and wait and and dream of that day that they'll be in heaven, but to begin living now like like it is in heaven, to pray that God's kingdom be established on earth and that they live on earth as things are already in heaven. And so that reality that God has prepared for us ought to shape our lives here and now. N.T. Wright, a theologian, he's written a lot of books. If you ever want good books to read, read N.T. Wright's books. He says this, he says, Christian life in the present with its responsibilities and particular callings is to be understood and shaped by the final goal for which we've been made and redeemed. So it's basically saying as we look forward and as we look into scriptures is what it will look like to live in the perfect world. What it will look like for all wounds to be healed, for all illness to no longer exist, for God to minister to us, to wipe away all our pain, our tears, that picture that's painted in the New Testament in Revelation for us, that we live now as though our lives are headed in that direction. The final goal shapes our every day. You see, the New Testament is challenging us to put our hope, all of it, in Jesus Christ and to submit to him as the only king who ever defeated death. And then the cool thing is this that when we do this, not only is Jesus gospel to the world, not only is he good news to the world, 
but then we become good news to the world as well. The Bible teaches us that the church should be good news to the world. That our lives and not just our lips should proclaim the gospel. Should proclaim good news to those we come in contact with. Now there's two practices that characterize God's kingdom. God has called us, has called the entire world to come in his kingdom and to live as citizens of his kingdom. But there's two practices that we believe very firmly in here at Tri-Cities Church that characterize citizenship in, the, in God's kingdom. The first is baptism. We believe baptism is essential, that, that God calls us to be baptized as a way of declaring our citizenship in God's kingdom. It's a way of saying that now I live as a citizen of God's kingdom and I have allegiance to the king. The Bible says that when we are baptized, that it's literally symbolic of our death and resurrection to new life as a citizen of God's king. Look at Romans chapter um, chapter 6. It says this in verse 3, Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Baptism is our entrance into God's kingdom. It is important. In fact, we have these um, study guides, baptism study guides. We, uh, we have them out at this welcome table. And, and I want, if you have not been baptized, pick one of those up. Um, work your way through it. Get an understanding. Grab me or grab Jamie. Grab someone and talk to them about baptism. The scriptures are teaching us that God has established his kingdom and baptism is entrance into his kingdom. And even that study guide is on our website. If you go to our, our new website and you go into the resources tab, it's there. You can, you can look it up and you can work through it. But talk to someone about baptism because it's important that we take that step of entering into God's kingdom so that we can live as citizens of God's kingdom, not just now, but forever and ever and ever. And so baptism is one of the core practices of citizens of God's kingdom. The second is communion. And communion is something that we do every Sunday here. And it's a celebration of our citizenship into God's kingdom. It's saying, yes, I've been baptized in God's kingdom. I've entered. I am now a citizen. And I'm celebrating that. Every week from week to week, I'm celebrating the fact that I belong to God, that I have allegiance to God, that I face the destiny that God has prepared for me. You see, communion is a regular practice that marks Jesus' death and resurrection and its significance in our life. I like what Derek Sweatman said at Christian Church of Buckhead. And some of you know him. Tell him I'm quoting from him. He says, communion is a reminder that history is going somewhere that we are living between two comings and that when we eat the bread and drink the cup, we're pointing back to history. This is what happened and we're looking ahead to the future. This is what will happen. You see, we celebrate communion as saying we're citizens of God's kingdom, not just because of what God has done, but looking forward and it's because of what God is going to do in the future that he's going to complete his kingdom that's already been established on the earth. You see, the scriptures teach us that Jesus was sent to fulfill the gospel. So we're in this series. We're talking about driven, Jesus being driven by the gospel. The gospel is not something that just happened. It was part of God's plan. It was preexistent 
before Jesus was ever born, the gospel was. And Jesus was sent to fulfill the gospel, to live it out, to make it a reality, to accomplish it. In other words, he's saying, at the resurrection, it is so. This is the plan of God, and now it is so. And the gospel is calling us all to come and live as citizens of God's kingdom. And we're going to close with sharing in the Lord's Supper. And we have these four tables around the room. And each one has the bread, which is symbolic of Jesus' body that was broken for us. And it has juice, which is symbolic of Jesus' blood that was spilled for us on the cross. And when we do this, we're celebrating the fact that we are citizens of God's kingdom, that we belong to God, that God has done something in our lives. And the reality is that we're all in this state of hearing the gospel and responding to it and being converted to the people that God has created us to be. And we're all at different places in this journey. Right? Some are at one place. Some are just beginning. Some have been there for years. But the reality is we're all walking with one another together. That's what the church is. It's a community that realizes that God has done something and is doing something in this world. And he's called us to be a part of what he's doing. Now maybe you've taken that first step and you've been baptized. Or maybe you haven't taken that step yet. And that's nothing to be ashamed of. The scriptures talk about it. And we looked at it several weeks ago. It says, count the cost. See what it's going to cost you. Don't just make that decision. Think about it. Talk to someone about it. This morning we have um, two people in the back, Blair and, or three people will be in the back, Blair and Stacy, and then Kim will be in the back. Um, if there's anything that God is doing in your life and you need someone just to pray for you or to pray with you, see one of them and they would love to pray with you. Or if you need to talk more about a decision for Jesus Christ, if you need to talk more about what it means to follow him, to be a follower, to be a Christian, to live as a citizen of God's kingdom, or baptism, or any of these questions that could be circulating around in your head, talk to them. Because the reality is, is God has called us. He's opened the doors wide. And he says, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, no matter what you've been through, no matter what your background is, no matter where you are in life, you're welcome into my kingdom. Let's pray.